As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is a true crime podcast, as the title suggests. So please consider this your warning, that it's not suitable for children, and it probably will contain content that may be triggering to some people. Also, it's an Australian true crime podcast, so Australian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware it may contain the voices of deceased people. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. I don't think I hesitated really. It was a big leap, of course, but I think I didn't really realize what I was doing, going and really move on the other side of the planet. Any weapon, any tool that is available, I'm gonna use it. That's Adele Desir. 
She's a world leader when it comes to analysing child sexual exploitation material and identifying the victims and offenders involved. In 2016, Adele left her native France, where she was a criminal intelligence officer with Interpol, to join Australia's Argos Task Force, because it's the best in the world. You'll hear Adele mentioned a lot in this episode of Australian True Crime, because our guests today both hold her in very high esteem. They are John Rouse, who is one of the founding members of the Argos Task Force, and filmmaker and journalist Akeem Dev, who made the excellent documentary The Children in the Pictures, about the work of the Argos team, who joins us again. Adele features heavily in the documentary, and you can watch it on SBS On Demand. Of course, there's a link in our show notes to help you do that. Later this week, we'll upload a second episode with these two guests, in which they answer your questions. But today we spend time with John and Dev learning more about the work of the Argos Task Force and the most common threats to young people online right now. It isn't easy listening, but knowledge really is the only weapon we have in the ever-escalating battle of cyber sexual exploitation of children. Sexploitation, for example. Do you know what that is? Would you know if it was happening to your child or to a young person in your family? I'll hand over to John Rouse to give us a crash course in this insidious trend. The whole issue of sextortion started a long time ago where we had child sex offenders targeting children to produce content. Predominantly, this is happening in the sanctity and safety of their own homes. Once they had content and they, they would gain that content by you know, pretending to be a peer or pretending to be a celebrity, they'd convince the child, for example, that they were Justin Bieber the child would turn on their camera, produce content. Once that happened, the offender then turned it around and said, if you don't produce more content for me, uh, I'm going to send this to all of your friends. And at that point, the child sex offenders were only focused on getting more content. That was the commodity. They just wanted more sexually explicit material. Where that changed about 18 months to two years ago was what every single Australian has been subjected to is like a Nigerian scam. So the Ivory Coast and Nigeria started turning the financial gun sites on, not, it didn't start specifically with children, it started with pretty much anybody who they could exploit. So they would set up fake profiles on platforms, predominantly Instagram, and they would target predominantly males that were following female celebrities or female golfers or you know attractive women. They would then hit them up with friend requests ultimately groom them into producing content after convincing them that, you know, they, they were interested in a relationship. And as soon as that happened, everything changed. They then started demanding financial compensation. It could be adult males who are married or it, predominantly what we're seeing is young boys. And the real tragedy about all of that is, uh, you know, we've, we've lost kids. Kids have taken their own lives because of this because they haven't known how to deal with Absolutely. it. Absolutely. I mean, the feeling I get in my own stomach, the terror of of feeling that somebody could send images like that to my family, my friends, to everybody, publish them online. I don't know that I'd know how to handle it in the moment. And that, that is the issue, isn't it? So often with self-harm and certainly with, with taking people taking their own lives, it is that window of panic, that short time frame of not thinking it through. It's, as people often say, it's a long-term solution to a short-term problem. And young people have been known to take their own lives in their bedrooms while their parents are downstairs having no idea what's even happened. Yeah, absolutely. This kind of issue goes back quite a long time. 
Now, the Carol Todd is still living out the drama of losing her daughter Amanda in 2011 to an offender from the Netherlands. And, you know, her little girl took her own life. Uh, her suicide note still is on YouTube. So it's been around for quite some time because kids are not emotionally equipped to deal with this. And in many cases, they won't have the conversation with their parents. They don't know where to turn. And it's just a tragedy. It really is. I mean, how often is the offender apprehended? In these in, in instances where they've extorted images from a child, uh, pretty rare. I'll just tell you from the, the teams that do the victim identification work for law enforcement, their perspective on this. The thin blue line with respect to addressing sextortion is stretched beyond our ability to actually investigate it for a start. We've got victim a very finite resource called victim identification. That's people like Adele who featured in Dev's documentary who spend their entire day looking at children being raped on video or image for the sole purpose of trying to find that child, where they are, and get an investigation going somewhere in the world. If you ask Adele whether she cares about a dick pic being shared, I can tell you what she'll tell you. <laughs> I'm dealing with a child that's three years of age being raped. Where do you want me to spend my time? So what you're seeing here is sextortion, the capping communities around the world just running rife because law enforcement resources are stretched beyond the capability to service that. But I'll always advocate for the fact that there is significant harm associated with this. I would hope that you would foster a relationship with your children uh, where they could come and tell you anything. That's the ideal perfect state. And if they do come forward, number one, believe them, believe them that something's happened, support them. Like Dev said, tell them, you, you're the victim of crime here uh, and I'm here to help you. Please do not ostracise your child for coming forward to you and telling you that something bad's happened. I don't know if you've been following the story of the Delphi murders in the States, the two young women, oh, they're not women, they were little girls, they were 12 Abigail Williams and Liberty German, who were murdered about five years ago. They were the, the girls who were out walking, hiking, sort of just outside of town, and the man came along and one of them thought to film him on her phone as he approached them because she was obviously disturbed by it, and he said, down the hill to them. So she captured that on her phone. And so the police had that and they played that for a couple of years and they finally made an arrest not too long ago. There is some conjecture that he was part of a group of men who used, who shared a Snapchat account. And the Snapchat account was a catfishing account. It was set up to look like it would belong to a young boy, to a 14-year-old handsome boy. And a group of sex offenders shared it and would use it for their various activities. Look, it, th that methodology has been around since the internet started. Uh, we made an arrest for online grooming in 2002. It was far worse than online grooming when we finalised the investigation, but adult male on internet relay chat, IRC, old tech, uh, purporting to be a young boy, grooms young girl, gets her to meet with him. She turns up and hears this 48-year-old man but, but a group of men sharing an account like that? Yeah. Really? So on tour, on the darknet right now, there's enormous groups that are congregating to share sextorted content. They're in competition with each other to produce more content and share it amongst each other. Mm. They write manuals on how to do it. They give each other tips and tricks. They pass over accounts 
of vulnerable kids. Yeah, it's it's all for the taking. And I mean, we'll continue to keep on making the same mistakes and looking for different results. If we don't address the fundamental issues is that technologically speaking, from the crafting and design of apps that proliferate our market and are usable, no safeties are put in at the engineering level, at the design level. So if they're open to exploitation, people will exploit them. You know, that's why in the last probably the eight months, I've really turned my gun sights on industry for failing to do everything that they possibly can to stop this, and they can. Do you mean so- the social media platforms? And Yeah. Yeah, yeah the, Z- the Zuckerbergs of yeah. the world, the Metas that are only interested in financial profit. Because now they made a big show, didn't they? They made a change of some sort, but in actual fact it made it, I believe it made it, easier for this process to continue is that right end-to-end encryption yeah that's exactly what i'm talking about can you explain that to us yeah okay look really simply this is a complex issue so right now globally industry meta is reporting violations of their platform to the national center for missing children in washington dc those are called cyber tips So industry is consistently scanning their communications across platforms like uh, Facebook Messenger for the distribution of known child abuse material, right? So in the background, an algorithm runs, it analyzes the images. It's not looking for your cooking photos or the photograph of your dog or you at the beach. It's looking for known child abuse material. So it's looking through our personal messages to each other. Every time you send a photo. Right, okay. All right. But that runs in the background. And what it's doing is it's just looking for a fingerprint, right? Once it gets a fingerprint match, it immediately alerts NECMEC, National Centre for Missing Children, as a cyber tip. That goes to some country for investigation, right? That's the extent of the violation of your privacy that is happening on Messenger. That's it. Now, Zuckerberg is implementing end-to-end encryption on the guise of protecting your privacy. Right. Right? Now, what that's going to mean, and it's it's starting to roll out now, what's it going to mean is a, roughly a 70% reduction globally in cyber tips, which is enormous. It's an enormous reduction. Already, we know that Facebook is laying off its trust and safety staff. The trust and safety officer in Australia has lost her job. The trust and safety lead in Singapore has lost his job. About 40,000 people are employed by Facebook in trust and safety. So I had a question from somebody this morning asking me, what's going on? I said, read the writing. (laughs) Once you implement end-to-end encryption and you see a 70% reduction in the demand on your trust and safety people, you don't need them anymore. So what's the bottom line here? Money. That's right. It's all about cost saving. It's got nothing to do with your privacy. It, it, It has to be the case that Facebook know exactly what's going on in that platform. You know, a couple of years ago, in terms of reporting, Facebook internally uh, said there was 90 million reports of their platform being used to either groom children. So there's machine learning involved in terms of like trying to analyze communiques but on the on their messaging platform, and also transmission of um, of CSAM, be it extorted photos or be it photos in production. That's internally. Think you could probably add another ten percent, you know, onto it. So they know, 
it's just the easiest solution for them to say that they're doing things to address a privacy lobby that is powerful in America, but not powerful anywhere else. But because America sets the cultural metronome that we all kind of follow, that we all are convinced now that end-to-end encryption is a good thing. Now, I don't want I don't want people seeing my footy tips when I'm sending it to my mate or whatever the fuck, you know, yeah. like it's... The only people who used to be interested in encryption were terrorists, you know. It wasn't that long ago. And now it's like everybody wants to make sure that their their precious, as you were saying, John, their precious photos of their dog and their, their recipes are encrypted. A lot of the argument around child protection comes down to the governance of the internet. And let's face facts, there's no one in charge. Nationally, at a national level, you can put in... Whatever laws that you want to want to do, and and you know, India is a really good example of that. They've they've worked out how toxic TikTok can be for their kids, so they're like, no, it's not going to happen in in India. So I mean, having having that unified global buy-in to say, yeah, look, we need to implement uh, laws that can um, go across borders, go across um, international um, legal conventions is very very. It's a very very difficult ask, but. I mean, my position is that if you know what's going on on these platforms, then at least you as an individual have the the personal freedoms to be able to make that choice. Dev, you've influenced me personally and I know a lot of other people on taking more responsibility when it comes to my children's usage of their devices and still it's months ago you said this to me and you said this to all of us. When you say... I can't take my phone off my kids. They won't let me. It's like, they're fucking kids. You're the parent. What do you mean they won't let you? Don't wait for the government to do something. That's not going to happen. Don't wait for somebody else to fix this. We have to take responsibility for what's happening in our own homes. It's a really interesting Venn diagram that happens, and I don't know what the answer is. It's a real chicken and the egg argument. But number one, like parents don't really know or accept the fact that their kids have a digital footprint, an online personality. A whole life. They, yeah. A whole life, which means kids are having this, you know, vicarious childhood that they're experiencing online and, you know, us as parents don't don't realise that. You know, we are so on the back foot that we're still at the point where awareness is still key. So we've just got to keep on getting the message out there that this is happening and then There are certain solutions out there, but um, there's still a hell of a lot more work to do. And and it boils down, as you always say, it boils down to us maintaining relationships with our kids. There is nothing as powerful. And I'm not by in any way attempting to blame any parent who has suffered and whose child has suffered online. But is there any is there anything as powerful at the moment as that? Look, 19 years ago, I was. Three years into my work at Argos dealing with technology facilitated crimes against kids. And I recognised 19 years ago that education and awareness by parents here is critical. I put my daughter's picture on the front cover of a booklet called Who's Chatting to Your Kids? And in that book was as much information as we could pump out to parents to educate yourself. There was a family contract at the back of that booklet. At that point in time, there was no e-safety commissioner. There was no awareness or prevention in Australia. We were it. Nothing has changed, right? Technology's evolved. 
but we still we have child sex offenders at one end of the technology and children at the other end. Nothing else has changed here. But I'll tell you what has changed is that the current generation of young parents grew up with this technology. Mm. So, you know, can you start applying some of your learning to yeah. it? But, look, we said it in, in Des' film, you know, it's a village issue, global issue. There's Everybody has a responsibility here. I'm going to keep attacking industry because they have a huge responsibility and they should have been regulated years ago. You know, the algorithms they're, they're developing now to keep our kids on device uh, and and lead them down rabbit holes. And I don't know if you're watching your Facebook feed at the moment, but you're getting a video stream, right? A little line of videos that you can follow. Depending on what you click on, you're going to get more of that. That's the algorithm feeding you what you're interested in. So if you're a child on TikTok, it's doing that to you as well. If you've got a morbid fascination with self-harm, guess what you're going to get? Mm. Right? And there's no responsibility for this. There's not enough people working at TikTok in moderation to, to even begin to look at the content that's being uploaded. Yeah. Regulation, simple as that. After the break, we discuss another very challenging topic, the latest attempts to politicise pedophilia. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Do you think this current climate of demonising everyone from drag queens to, God, I don't know, everyone, you know, there's this weird new environment where lots of people are being accused of pedophilia and grooming. Grooming is a big word that's going around at the moment. Is that 
detracting from the real battle? One of the things that I noticed on the book, we've got to realise people with a sexual interest in children who are gathering together in communities online, distributing that material and also distributing all the technological resources to stop themselves getting caught are serious sex offenders and by their very name, the way that we label them, they're called predators. They will jump in any type of crevice or open door or little gap in the window that they can. And I've read on the, these boards how they're going to take over the LGBTQ agenda and ingratiate themselves themselves in there. It's only a matter of time before we're another letter, they'll say on those boards. They will look for any excuse. But if we start, you know, if we start saying like every homosexual man has a sexual interest in children, every drag queen is is, is putting, I mean, Honestly, we're we are actually letting the wolves in sheep's clothing underneath the radar. Sure, there's acknowledging things that you know might be a sexual orientation, and in terms of like the pure theoretical psychology of it, you could say that a sexual attraction to children is an orientation, but it's an aberrant one. You know what I mean? If my sexual if my sexual orientation is wandering around and punching everyone in the face, that's the thing that does it for me. I'm not going to get a float in the parade. You know what I'm saying? Certainly don't disagree at all with what Deb said. The only thing I would say to you about child sex offenders is we've accepted that homosexuality is a sexuality, right? Heterosexuality is a sexuality. There's a range of sexualities that we're starting to identify uh, and accept as being part of our society. Part of the conversation that's been going on for some time now, particularly with you know people who are trying to think how we get ahead of the game of this uh, and stopping sexual abuse at the youngest possible age, is starting to think about programs like Stop It Now. Stop It Now is a program that has it's been launched in Australia. Jesuit services are piloting the program at the moment. And what that does is it allows somebody with a sexual interest in children, a self-identified sexual interest in children, to have a specialist that they can talk to about that with the hope that it will stop them ever acting out on it, oh. as opposed to going down the rabbit hole of the internet and into Tor and into large offending communities where you'll be encouraged. So I think the mature conversation about this is that we stop thinking of it as a sickness, an illness and a disease that you catch because it's not. A lot of these people are born this way. They don't become it. They are born this way. And for those people to allow a service to be launched that is an alternative to abusing a child has got to be a good thing. But muddying the waters with exactly what they're saying that, please grow up, like, for God's yeah. sake, like, that's just stupidity. Yeah, this it, it, it's a strange, sudden, it seems to me, crossover and, and a, a political movement. Yeah. It's fear-mongering and it's, it's bullshit. But also, John, we also know that, that most offenders are not clinically, don't have a clinical sexual attraction to children, don't we? Most offenders are actually acting out of opportunity, acting out of some other kind of psychological attraction to power and all of those things. Yeah, look, there's, there's, there's just a whole spectrum here about child sex offenders. We can see into the mind of the person that we're dealing with when we examine the contents of their hard drive. 
You know, like you see everything from uh, bestiality to adult pornography to like, I mean, we're dealing with messed up heads that would have sex with a chair. And then you have, as you say, you have the clinical diagnosis of a pedophile, which is a clinical diagnosis. I'm not qualified to call anybody a pedophile. You've got spectrums in sexuality here that we're dealing with, but you have a percentage that have a predetermined sexual preference for prepubescent children, right? And that's just a fact. It's a percentage of society. Now, it's wrong, it's bad, it causes harm, and it's criminalised, and I've dedicated my entire career to stopping it. But a little bit like Madeleine Vandenbruggen said in a TEDx talk, we need to stop the hate and start having a rational and mature conversation about this and finding alternate ways of dealing with it. You know, trying to stone Dennis Ferguson, and I had to deal with Dennis Ferguson in Queensland when when the hatred was out there, people, vigilantes marching on the wrong houses to burn this guy at the stake. That doesn't help anyone, okay? That guy was clinically blind, (laughs) <laughs> he was probably the least threat to com- the community, but he was the pin-up boy for child sex offenders. Also because he looked like a monster, which That's exactly the vast right. majority of them don't. Media loved him. Media mm. loved that face. The guy couldn't see past his knees, you know, but mm. he's what we love to hate. That's not what the reality is. The reality mm. is they live amongst us and they are in all sorts of guises. They are married men with kids. They're married women with kids. Are there more women offending or does it seem that way because of reportage? Uh, look, I've, it's always been underreported, I would suggest to you. Ah. We actually dedicated one of our conferences to the issue of, of female offenders. And it's a pretty, pretty interesting area of criminal, criminality to look at. In many cases, we see that the, the female offender is a co-offender. She's a facilitator, a party to it. We do see... And look, this this opens up another completely separate conversation around how the courts deal with female offenders. Yeah. If you've got an adult 35-year-old woman who has sex with a bunch of 12-year-old boys at a sleepover, how the court deals with her compared to an adult 35-year-old man who abuses 11 little girls. Yep. You know, I've, I've seen this enormous disparity in sentencing around the way that's treated. And we've heard about that from victims as well, from men who've said, you know, everyone was kind of trying to high-five me. Yeah. Yeah, good on you. You've lived out every young boy's fantasy. Well, mm. it's it's a really interesting conversation. But the reality is they exist. They are much in our statistical uh, side of things. They are far less uh, on our radar. We, you know, m- maybe 1% or 2% of the arrests every year are female offenders. They're driven, as you would know, women are driven a little bit differently to men in terms of, I guess, how they achieve sexual satisfaction, you know, that... The way a man does it is going to be very different to the way a woman does it. But on our radar in technology-facilitated crimes against children, they, they do pop up, but it's very rare compared to the number of males that we arrest. You know, the ones that have that genetic predisposition or attraction to children, there's several clinical studies that have been published. John refers to Dr. Michael Burke, and I had a great chat to him about the first person I ever discussed this with who was a, a child sex offender in a you know protective custody unit. And he talked so openly about it. And so I was I was kind of taken aback. And he was like, oh my God, I'm undergoing treatment. It's amazing. And for the first time in my whole career, and he'd been abusing children since you know he was a child and he was a man in his 60s, is he was like, I've now got the wherewithal to understand 
what I was doing was wrong. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, imagine going through your life thinking, um, well, well, what is wrong with this? You know what I mean? And, and I talked to Michael Burke about it, and he was like, you know, there's a part of the community that believes that people who have this genetic predisposition to children are actually easier to treat yeah, yeah. if you catch them early enough in their offending cycle because you can tell them, look, you know, it's not your fault. You're born this way. It's like being born with a, with a handicap. And you learn how to manage it and deal with it. Well, certainly if they're accepting of that. And certainly if they're accepting of that. But once again, it's you know, it's where you get them. It's the point of diagnosis of how you find them. And and you know, the hardest thing is is if they you know started to commit offences, it's it's harder to it's harder to bring them back, which is completely understandable from a from a psychological perspective as well. So, yeah, I mean, I, once again, I I just keep banging on about awareness, awareness, awareness. We need to have discussions like this. We need to, you know, realize that it's it's a lot more complex. There's no magic bullet cures to this problem, but it's a problem that we do need to address and the stats, that, you know, speak for themselves. It reminds me of Corella Place at Ararat Prison where a number of, of offenders who have actually served their sentences live afterwards. For various reasons, some of them are under orders, but some of them, uh, it's a sort of a really weird grey area legally, but some of them choose to live there because they don't feel as though they can live in the community and not offend, or they're afraid to live in the community because of the Dennis Ferguson kind of situations that they'll face in the community. They're well-known child sex offenders. We are not equipped, are we? We have never invested the time, the funding, the thought into actually how to deal with child sex offenders, with with pedophiles, not not these um, offenders who who offend for other reasons, but with clinical pedophiles. Whilst I was working in Argos for many years, I had the sex offender registry under my portfolio, and I was just thinking about you know like there's public debate around open access to public registers of where are they? We want to see the red dot on the map and things like that. Yeah, is there one in my street? Exactly, and you know like I've always pushed back against access to a public register for a couple of reasons. Right now we know where nearly all of them are. Mm. They're complying, they're reporting, they're being visited. Uh, you put them on a public register and, and I'm going to start dealing with Dennis Ferguson's again. Or, you know, we won't find them. They'll go off the grid. With the red dot on the map thing and, and like, there's, is there one in my street? Well, is that not going to breed complacency? I don't have any red dots in my street, so I've got no child sex offenders. So, kids, off you go, play, rubbish. Yeah. Sex yeah. offenders registries only have the people we've caught. It's, yeah. you know, and, and recidivism is only about them reoffending and us catching them again. And yeah. in many cases, they learned from the first experience so they don't get caught again. But... I don't think we have a bad system. I think we've got a, a, as good a system as you possibly can for trying to manage these people back into the community. They, In many cases, they have to come back into the community. We don't have the capacity in prisons to hold them all. There, no. are, there are certainly some that should never, ever be released back into the community again. And, you know, at Argos, we put a few of those away. How do you and how does the service, the police service, support you and support investigators? I mean, you were just talking earlier about Adele, whose job it is to watch the most graphic child sex offence material. And I have friends who worked in the service years ago, 20 years ago, who left because of mental health issues. I have one girlfriend, Narelle Fraser, who the last big job she had, she sat for three days in a room watching um, child exploitation material without really significant breaks, without 
any kind of, you know, mental health breaks or anybody just knocking on the door with a cup of tea. So how were you supported? Look, so I, I think the first thing I'd say to you is that just we need to recognise that holistically law enforcement is about trauma. Okay, whether yeah. you're whether you're stepping over the dead body of a 16-year-old that OD'd or you're at the scene of a fatal traffic accident where you're lifting three-year-old kids dead out of the car, policing is about trauma and uh, police aren't very good at dealing with PTSD and self-recognising it. So let's start with that. 2003 at Argos, we implemented a program to start supporting our police officers which was regular meetings uh, with psychologists for a debrief. We actually had critical incident debriefs after every major or traumatic incident. But you had regular psychometric testing where there's welfare officers on the floor, police in Queensland, I can only speak for Queensland, we have anonymous access to uh, professional therapeutic services. You get five free meetings. It's never disclosed to the Queensland Police Service where you can go and meet with the professionals. And then above all of that, it just comes down to the leadership and the management of the group to make sure you're trying to look after your people. I've suffered depression and stress myself from the work, having a very young daughter when I started doing online work uh, and being a COVID operative, pretending to be child sex offenders with a sexual interest in children, I recognise that a very early stage is very damaging and dangerous. You don't always pick them all up. You know, you've got a staffing base of around 40 people. You try to monitor them as best as you can, keep an open door policy. You walk the floor. You have regular team meetings. You rely on your leadership team underneath you to have the same relationship with the staff. Some will fall through the cracks. In the entire time I was at Task Force Argos in times of losing somebody to a psychological disability where they left the service, we only lost one. Uh, Others left the unit fully supported because it's always been a case of if you want out, you are out 100%. If you want to go and take a break, which and that's another part of the wellbeing thing, we mandated a three-month step out of the unit. We'll give you to any other part of the Queensland Police Service for three months, go smell the roses, have a break, because this can be quite uh, a crusade, this work, that you don't want to let go of. And it's not until you step out and have some reflection that you recognise that it's actually doing you damage. So we would mandate three months, step out, your chair's here if you want to come back. Uh, If not, please move on. You know, you don't want to keep people doing this work if they don't want to do it. So I've just always kind of worked on on the basis that, like I said at the beginning of this rant I'm on at the moment, uh, that law enforcement is about trauma. We don't see anything really that is good. If you've called us, something bad has happened. The saving grace for me to get through the years of being able to work with Argos, because you've seen all the same material, yeah, yeah, and it, you know, I'm, I, I had my, I had my struggles, and um, you know, a lot, a lot of the times I, I was in freefall because I didn't have a support network and I didn't know, uh, you know, I wasn't looking at material kind of under supervision or guidance. So, yeah, it had a really caustic effect on me. But I started um, researching a, a lot of stuff around PTSD and. You know, I mean, John's John's right. You're not in the business of good news being a cop, but there is something about the exposure to child abuse material that can be often be the straw that breaks the camel's back. So, looking at you know the the causes of PTSD, there's a common theory that it involves the trauma of what you have to experience with the notion or the nature of the crime, and because there is such a malevolent aspect of it, it's incredibly 
caustic on the soul and on your mind. One thing I realized when I started first interviewing the police involved, it's their full-time job. It's not something that you want to go home and talk to the missus about at the end of your shift. And when you have got some downtime with your own community, it's probably the last thing that you want to talk about as well. You know, you're human beings, you've all got different interests and whatever. But one thing I found is like, I mean, I've, you know, I've had a lot of experience making documentaries and interviewing subjects. These guys and men and women were just so incredibly giving of their experience. And I kind of realized, you know, a lot for a lot of, a lot of them, it was their first time being able to sort of like take a break from just being there, you know, in the moment, investigating and stepping back and going, okay, yeah, right. This is what it is like. This is what it's like for me. But one thing I give them credit for is that they were so honest about their their struggles with the material, that it, that it is hard, it's not easy work, but their motivation to keep on going. You know, I remember one of my first days of being spending a bit of time on the floor, and John has to buzz me in and out of the Argos, you know, take me to the lift, and I was, I mate, I was folded like a deck chair. I was crumpled after that day. And I kind of looked up at him and I was like, man, how did, how, how, it's like 20 years. How, how do you do this? And he looked out at me and he said, I do it for the children in the pictures. That was it. That was the, that light bulb moment where I was like, this is, this is the reason that you, that they come back. And I can imagine that would be really hard to walk away from, even if you knew you weren't doing that well. It is. Everybody's got their own way of dealing with it. I'd get into work at 4.30am, I had a group of mates, uh, we would ride 37 kilometres on our road bikes, I'd then hit the gym, I'd hit the shower, I was on the floor by 6.15, so I've done exercise. I never exercised in the afternoon because there's no guarantee I'd get to get to the gym in case my day turned to shit, yeah. but if I exercised first thing in the morning, I was done. And you've got an endorphine rush lifting you through the day, there's scientific evidence around endorphine. So exercise was a huge part of survival. My other part was I'm a musician. So I actually had a part of my life where, and we're, you know, the band I still am in is very good. We're playing big corporate events for thousands of people. You actually, you actually see people having a good time. So you're not seeing bad, you're actually seeing, and it's also, it was a hobby interest that uh, is so polar, polar opposite to what I do for my career. I could switch off. So there's just a range of survival things. And I used to talk to the staff about it at the quarterly meetings about, you know, just survival tactics, never concerning yourself with the child that you remove from harm. Again, never think about them again. Move on to the next one because if you do, it's part of the problem I have, unfortunately, Dev, with, with the documentary. And I can't watch it. I can't watch Girl 1 in that documentary because that's a lived experience for me. I had two years of that particular case. And... I can talk about it, I can present on it, I can educate law enforcement on it, but I can't actually watch the documentary because of that. Um, but that's self-recognising, that I've got a trigger point there and I know how to deal with it. Queensland Police has a very archaic and discriminatory policy of mandatory age retirement and they applied that to me on June the 12th this year. So I did find that, like we had our Argos conference that I'd I kicked off a conference at the Gold Coast in 2013 and it ran again this year and I, I just did some mentoring to help them 
basically hand over the reins. And I met a whole lot of new Argos staff at that, and it was really sad because they were all kind of saying how disappointed they were that we didn't get to work together. And, yeah, that's that's the biggest loss for me is not working with that team anymore. And also for then the younger members and for the people coming in, I mean, what they've lost is your mentorship, your leadership. I mean, it is, as acknowledged by everyone on the planet, an incredibly, unbelievably difficult job that no one should ever have to do. And so to come into that job without you down the hall is just crazy. Yeah. I'm continuing to do what I can in the periphery to support them. Of course you are. Of course you would. That doesn't shock me in the in the slightest because in order to stay in the work that you've you've done for so long, you have to have a personal commitment to it. It's not the sort of job you say, oh, all right, yeah. then I'll go and do something else. No, no, and not when you've been doing it for as long as I have. You know, 1996 I started doing child protection, so it's just pretty much ingrained. And once you uh, got a child and you're working in this crime type, you just don't want to see what happens to kids happen to you know, like certainly not to your own child, but to other kids, you do everything you can to stop it. So, no, I was just lucky. I, was, I found a cause anyway. I found a cause that I believed in, which I got great personal work satisfaction out of, you know. I felt like I was doing something useful. Thank you to our guests today, John Rouse and Akeem Dev. And don't forget you can watch his excellent documentary, The Children in the Pictures, on SBS On Demand. We have a link in the show notes to help you do that. In our next episode, John and Dev will join us again to answer your questions about online grooming and online child exploitation. If you need support after listening to this podcast, you can call Lifeline on 13 11 14 or contact 1800 RESPECT on 1800 737 732 or 1800respect.org.au. Indigenous Australians can contact 13 YARN on 139276 or 13yarn.org.au. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.